Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Bergen, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burden here today with Danny Spriggs. Danny is the Vice President of Global Security and Safety at the Associated Press Headquarters in New York City, where he facilitates all security-related tactical, operational, and strategic planning for the AP's nearly 250 bureaus in 100 countries. Danny spent 28 years in the U.S. Secret Service, starting as a special agent with the Albuquerque, New Mexico field office and working his way up to Deputy Director in the Washington, D.C. headquarters. His awards and honors include a Special Agent Award from the U.S. Department of Treasury for his performance during the March 30, 1981 assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan. Danny, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thanks for having me, Fred. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. It's certainly an honor to get you on our podcast, uh, Danny. Tell us about your amazing career. Well, uh, I appreciate the uh, description of an amazing career. I was very fortunate to have a very successful law enforcement career, which started in Albuquerque, New Mexico, as a local police officer for a short period of time before, in 1976, I joined the Secret Service through its Albuquerque field office. As a special agent in the Albuquerque field office, I was exposed to its primary responsibilities, both in the area of investigative work as well as protection. Uh, I spent about three years in the Albuquerque field office before being transferred to the Washington, D.C. Bureau, where, again, I was a special agent for approximately four years, then moving on to uh, the counter-assault team, which was a It was the Secret Service's effort to have a responding force rather than uh, a reactive force in in the threat of terrorism. And so I was a team leader with the uh, counter-assault team for a period of three years, at which time uh, I gained a lot of experience in tactical uh, strategies relative to thwarting terrorism and terrorist attacks. From there, I moved on to the Presidential Protective Division, where, again, as a special agent, I was responsible for the protection of the president, the immediate family, and, of course, those individuals uh, associated with the White House. The White House. So um, there, and and what I've described to you up to this point is as a special agent, uh, I was fortunate enough to move into management in operating one of the small field offices of the Secret Service. And I might want to add that um, many folks uh, can relate to the Secret Service as being the protection of government officials worldwide, but little is known about how the Secret Service came to be, which was the creation of uh, an investigative force to look at counterfeit money. That was in 1865, and ironically, 
Abraham Lincoln on the day that he created the Secret Service to go out and chase counterfeiters was the same day that he was uh, assassinated. So uh, I say that to say the Secret Service has field offices throughout the United States and in some foreign countries for the the security of our uh, financial uh, financial systems. And that's how the Secret Service came to be. And in fact, uh, a little footnote there is that three presidents had been assassinated uh, before the Secret Service actually got protective responsibilities. And I was following the assassination of William McKinley in 1901. And of course, since that time, the Secret Service's protective responsibilities have expanded to the vice president, uh, presidential candidates, as well as visiting foreign heads of state. So um, my career uh, in management uh, allowed me to uh, supervise a number of field offices, protective divisions, and uh, and subsequently the number two uh, person in the Secret Service as the deputy director in which the position I'm retired from. That's amazing, Danny. I appreciate you sharing that with our audience. And now you're at the Associated Press. I know back when I was uh, in the counterterrorism division at State, um, we had uh, one of your reporters that was kidnapped and held hostage in Lebanon for a long period of time. And uh, that was Terry Anderson. So help us understand some of your biggest challenges protecting journalists around the globe. I imagine it's got to be daunting. You're correct, Fred, and I appreciate you bringing that out because it is a daunting task, to say the least. Just like in law enforcement or any other first responders, journalists are are a unique group of individuals who run to danger uh, without the protection of a law enforcement or, or a security component in many cases. Uh, but they put themselves on the front line in order to gather news, tell the story, and to eventually tell the world what is happening. And so my challenge has been, particularly with the AP, with having 250 bureaus in over 100 countries, is to be able to assess uh, the, the risk that they face from time to time. My whole objective uh, in and carrying out my duties and responsibilities as AP is to be able to provide uh, comprehensive uh, measures in order to safeguard them whenever they're carrying out their duties. Uh, that in and of itself becomes a challenge because of the nature of covering war zones, high conflict areas, protests, demonstrations in which uh, photojournalists, text journalists, and um, video journalists really have a need or have a desire to get up close and personal um, to, uh, to the action, if you will, in order to, to tell the story that they're looking to tell. So my strategy has always been to be proactive. Uh, I've always uh, advocated prevention or avoidance as far as a security measure in order to safeguard individuals and or our facilities as well. And so what we try to do is establish those measures in advance and in doing so to uh, assess the risk, first of all, uh, the threat, and to analyze where uh, what can be done as far as contingency planning. 
my department provides all of the personal protective equipment that journalists need when covering war zones. Uh, everyone knows now that uh, the uh, conflict in Ukraine is one in which is becomes a daily challenge for me currently. And we have a number of journalists who we have uh, moved into the to the region in order to cover that story. And so it's been uh, a challenge to me to get all of the intelligence information that's available to me, assess that, and to provide the necessary counsel to these journalists as to, you know, where they should go, where they shouldn't go. And if they do go, uh, what are the uh, contingency measures that have been put in place relative to where's, you know, where are your exits, where are your, where your routes that you can egress from, what kind of vehicles are you using, where's the nearest hospital, where is the, uh, the help going to come from, if you will. So all of that information is fed into journals before they actually go into a high-risk assignment. Uh, and needless to say, it becomes obvious that that is a challenge in and of itself. Uh, we've been very successful in the 12 years I've been with the AP of minimizing threats and obviously serious injury and death. Uh, we have lost some journalists along the way, uh, but uh, it's been minimal. And we continue to work real hard to prepare our journalists for working you know, in different environments, threatening environments. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Antec Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Danny, let's talk about uh, 1981, uh, one of the incidents that uh, obviously was a watershed moment uh, in the history of protection. You were there when uh, John Hinckley attempted to assassinate President Reagan. Can you tell us about that day? Sure. Uh, Fred, it'd be my pleasure. And I say it's my pleasure only because you know, when you have a historical moment like that, uh, it's something that remains with you uh, as if it happened yesterday. And that, that's definitely the case with me and to many of the agents that were there that day. Uh, on March 30th, 1981, uh, the president was uh, had a plan before uh, a union group at the Washington Hilton Hotel. Now, if I can back up uh, before we actually get into that. It's important for your audience to understand that the Secret Service uh, doesn't go into any place in the blind, if you will. It is always advanced. It is always assessed relative to the threat to a protectee, in this case, the president, and what measures need to be put in place in order to safeguard a safe arrival and departure. Every agent that's assigned to the president has a as a specific responsibility 
On March 30th, 1981, I was assigned as the intelligence coordinator for that visit. The intelligence coordinator's responsibility is to gather all intelligence information relative to the president's visit, not only to that location, but also to that particular group. If there was any information uh, or controversial information relative to the president's participation with this particular group, as this group become under scrutiny by organizations that might pose a risk, and of course, the venue itself, were there any criminal activities or any instances that might, you know, put the president and others at risk during the visit. So it was my job to gather all that information, assess it, and to make the necessary recommendations to the advance agent, in this case, the site advance agent, relative to the the security measures that had already been discussed. And so on that day, uh, I, along with those responsibilities, that's my job to brief all agents who were assigned to the Washington Hilton Hotel relative to any relative to any information, adverse information that uh, I may have developed uh, during the, the three days prior to getting the assignment. As the president uh, completed his remarks on the departure, uh, an assassin uh, attempted to um, not only harm the president, but all those around him. Uh, I preceded the president uh, from the uh, exit at the Washington Hotel. Uh, I immediately focused on a crowd that was uh, hollering Mr. President, trying to get the president's attention. And of course, there were other agents positioned as well as police officers positioned in order to safeguard the the departure uh, on that day. Uh, Shortly after the president exited the entrance or the egress from the hotel, shots rang out. Uh, I immediately recognized them as gunshots, not as backfires from a vehicle or anything. I drew my weapon and actually was the only agent that actually had a shot at Hinckley. Uh, and I would describe it as I did in, in my reporting, as well as uh, when I testified in court against Mr. Hinckley, that that shot was there uh, in, in nanoseconds, if you will. What I thought was an agent come across my line of fire, the FBI showed me video of uh, Sergeant Gurn, who was a Metropolitan Police officer who had come across my line of fire, and therefore I, I did not fire. As I moved toward the assailant, as others did to, uh, to restrain him, uh, there were a number of folks who had been wounded. At that time, I did not know that the president had been wounded. And, but I did know that uh, Delahanty had been wounded. Uh, uh, he was bleeding profusely uh, at, uh, at my feet in front of me. And, of course, there, were, uh, there was Sergeant Delahanty who was also. So Mr. Hinckley fired six rounds in in less than two seconds. Now, I'm often asked, you know, how is it that I was able to act, react so quickly? How is it that the agents assigned to the detail? Uh, reacted so quickly? Uh, the answer is, is simple. It's called muscle memory. It's the training that we receive and the repetitive training that we see, receive relative to cover and evacuate in the event of uh, an assassination attempt, whether it be a lone gunman, several gun, uh, gunmen, or an explosion, is to cover and evacuate. Because we train uh, at a very high level, 
on a regular basis, not once or twice a year, but on a quarterly basis, different scenarios, it becomes muscle memory. Again, in two, in less than two seconds, there's no time to think. So all of your moves are instinctive. My move was, a, was an instinctive move. Tim McCarthy, who the agent uh, was uh, spread eagle in front of the door as the president was being pushed in the car, uh, that was muscle memory. That was instinctive moves. He recognized the threat. He got between the assailant and the target and spread eagle. Those are, those are not necessarily things that you think that you have to do in a short period of time. It is all about being instinctive and reacting accordingly. Uh, as I moved toward uh, Mr. Hinckley, uh, there were obviously a number of uh, people, agents, officers uh, who were looking to restrain him. We had some difficulty there getting the handcuffs on him. Um, when we got, uh, when we finally got him as the intelligence coordinator, myself and my partner were to take custody. One of our jobs is to preserve the scene. Once we were able to uh, restrain uh, Mr. Hinckley, uh, we moved to the police car. Uh, I'd asked uh, one of the agents to get me a police car. Uh, the first police car that came up, we couldn't get in due to the excitement and chaos. We saw another police car and moved to a second police car. I think what's important here, too, is the entire time when we were trying to restrain him, there were a matter of seconds in which the threat didn't necessarily was thwarted just with the restraining of uh, Mr. Hinckley. For all intents and purposes, that could have been a diversion and we could have been, there could have been a secondary attack. That's something, again, that we've been trained to recognize from time to time. So if you notice that, if you look at the video, you'll see that not only do we have Mr. Hinckley contained, but we're also searching the area for other possible threats. And as we move to the vehicles, we're covering, in this case, Mr. Hinckley, uh, and to make sure that, one, there were not other assailants out there that might be able to um, obviously pose a threat to us. We've all been familiar with the scenes from the John F. Kennedy assassination in which Ruby uh, came from within the crowd to shoot Oswald. Uh, again, that was despite the fact that there were a number of uh, law enforcement officers uh, surrounding Oswald during that time. And of course, these are the things that we look at, we train for, we review, we dissect, we uh, tabletop those kinds of incidents, and those kinds of things remain with you, uh, particularly in a protective mode. When we got to Central Cell Block, I, I directed uh, Officer Swain, who was driving the car, he's a Metropolitan Police Officer, I directed him to take us to uh, Metropolitan Central Cell Block, which is their headquarters. Now, I could have directed them to take us to the Washington Field Office of the Secret Service. But again, muscle memory playing in my mind, the Kennedy assassination and the commotion surrounding that particular incident, I wanted to take him somewhere where I knew that I would be going into a secure area that would be um, filled with police officers that would be able to assist us in getting into the holding cell. That did not exist at the Washington field office of the Secret Service. It was in a commercial building uh, there in the parking garage area there. It was a lot of public uh, vehicles, unknown vehicles, 
and I wanted to take him someplace safe. Um, that turned out to be uh, probably one of my biggest challenges in that when we got there, the, the homicide detectives of the Metropolitan Police Officers uh, knew that their officer had been shot. They knew that Della had, to be, had been shot and wanted to take custody of Mr. Hinckley. Uh, I refused to do that because uh, I knew there was an attempt on the president's life. I was not going to turn that over to Metropolitan Police Department because I didn't know exactly what had transpired back at the scene. They were really hyped up and excited, a sense of anxiety because they had an officer down. I understood that. But at the same time, I didn't want anything that would uh, confuse the issue relative to any proceedings that took place. I wanted to make sure it was done in an orderly fashion. Uh, my partner, uh, Dennis McCarthy, was with me, tried to hold them off uh, for as long as he could. Uh, I took him into a holding room. They began to identify, take his identifications off of him, and uh, got on the phone in the same room with my supervisors to let them know the identity of this uh, person. That It was... Minutes after that, that I got a call from the director of the Secret Service to confirm that the president had been wounded. And from that point on, the director advised me that the FBI would be en route to take custody of Mr. Hinckley and take over the investigation. Danny, uh, that uh, sequence of events uh, is simply unbelievable to listen to you from a first-person account uh, explain. And uh, for all of us who uh, have watched that uh, repeatedly, um, I think our nation owes you a, a tremendous debt of gratitude for your efforts that day and uh, the heroism that you displayed, as well as your colleagues with the Secret Service and certainly the Metropolitan Police Department. Um, so uh, I want to thank you for that. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything that you would like to say that we haven't asked you? I would only say this. I'm very familiar with your organization, OnTech, and I would say that I was really impressed with the, uh, the uh, conference that I participated recently in. Uh, I really uh, applaud OnTech for its pro. Uh, proactive measures in assessing intelligence and understanding how important it is that in order for one to have a strategy of prevention, that proactive measures have got to be a large part of that. Contingency planning is necessary, but in order to prevent uh, and, to, uh, and to have a successful and safe environment, clearly intelligence assessment and being able to read intelligence assessment and to uh, understand how that can be implemented into your security measures is really, really important. I want to thank you for this opportunity to um, uh, share my story uh, and to continue to uh, work toward you know, a safe environment for those who put themselves at risk on a day-to-day -day basis. Thank you so much for those kind words, Danny. Thank you.
This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.